Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, we're going to continue with our coronavirus or COVID-19 series. And this week, we're going to focus specifically on IFRS 9, just the beginning. We're, not, we're going to do another podcast later on more detail, but focusing on impairment and expected credit loss. And I am joined today by the amazing Sandra Thompson to help me through that. Welcome back, Sandra. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth. Good to be no. back. Good. Okay, I'm talking about one of your favourite topics, expected credit loss. <laughs> so, it's not my favourite topic in the last few weeks. I've done a lot of <laughs> talking about it. <laughs> I bet you have. <laughs> so let's. I'm going to try and get all your wisdom in uh, 15 minutes or so. So let's start at the beginning. So expected credit loss is obviously forward-looking expectations. I mean, in the current environment and how much it's rapidly changing, I can imagine that's um, fairly challenging. So could you give us some broad insight on what people should be thinking about? Yeah, certainly can. Um, and as you say, it is very challenging at the moment given COVID-19 and it's probably the single area where we're getting the most questions. Um, and the other thing I should say up front is this is as much an issue for the corporates as it is for the banks. I think sometimes there's a view that, oh, well, banks have got lots of financial assets, lots of loans. They, they're the only ones that need to worry about expected credit loss and impairment under IFRS 9. And, and that isn't the case. The corporates are facing similar challenges to the banks. So if you're from a corporate background, don't switch off for the next 10, 15 minutes or so. The first thing to know, as you said, it's a forward-looking model, relies on reasonable and supportable information about past events, current conditions and future economic conditions. So it is very difficult because you have to be forward-looking and no one quite knows what's going to happen with COVID-19. However, that does not mean you can, if you like, put your head in the sand, pretend COVID-19 is not happening and not take any impact into account when you do your ECL calculation. So we do still expect entities to calculate an ECL that includes COVID-19. And in fact, the ISB put out a document a couple of weeks back that confirmed exactly that. It will be judgmental, but it's not impossible. So you still need to do something. The other thing to note is when you, you look at how the ECL model applies, there's, there's two bits to it. There's what we call staging. So are you using a 12-month um, ECL calculation? Or has there been a significant increase in credit risk um, and therefore you're using a lifetime ECL calculation? That's the first element. And then the second element is actually measuring the ECL and COVID-19 is going to impact both of those. So it needs to be considered both in the staging and in the measurement. And the third thing to note, as you said, it, it is very judgmental. So I think the trick to this is entities making the best use of the information they've got available. And we might talk in a bit more detail as we go through as exactly how you might do that. But as I say, don't put your head in the sand. You can do something, but look at what information you've got and look at how you can make the best use of that. OK, brilliant. So our first message there is you, we've got to do something. So let's work out what that something is now. And um, at a high level, uh, well, like you said, we'll get into the detail in a second. What should people be considering in the model? Um, as I said, it does. the COVID-19 is going to impact both the staging and the measurement. So the first thing to think about is has the credit risk, that's the risk of default, increased significantly since initial recognition? If so, then the ECL needs to switch from being a 12-month ECL to a lifetime ECL. And then the, third, the second thing to think about is actually measuring the ECL. And typically that has three components to it, the risk of default, 
how much is exposed on default and then the loss given default. So we'll, we might talk in a bit more detail about the three elements of those calculations, but think about it for both. And I, I think you're probably going to ask me a question on each of them as we go through. <laughs> I am. You, it's like you predicted what, what I was going to ask. So let's take those two in turn. So the first thing you mentioned there was about the staging and the significant increase in credit uh, credit risk. Could you talk us through that first, po- uh, that first point? Yeah. And actually, the first thing, having told you you need to think about it, is that <laughs> some people actually don't need to. Oh, there you go. There's a so positive. If you're, there is a positive. So if you're using the simplified model, corporates can use that for trade receivables, lease receivables and contract assets. And in fact, they have to use it for an, uh, a receivable that's less than 12 months. Then you automatically use lifetime loss for everything. So therefore, you don't even need to think about this. However, everybody else does. And that will include things like intergroup loans and loans to associates, joint ventures, Um, as well as loans to subsidiaries in parent financial statements and any longer term receivables or indeed where corporates have elected not to use a simplified approach. Um, And it will include the vast majority of loans on a bank's balance sheet. And I think for those, the biggest question we're getting is about payment holidays and how do payment holidays impact the staging decision. Now, pre-COVID-19, we would have said that a payment holiday more or less automatically pushed a loan from being in stage one to stage two, because pre-COVID-19, it would indicate that the borrower was in financial difficulty. The borrower would probably approach the lender saying, having trouble paying, can you grant me a payment holiday? The lender would take quite a detailed look at the, the borrower's financial circumstances, tailor the payment holiday to their individual needs because they were in financial difficulty. So bit of a no-brainer that's an increase in credit risk. Um, In a post-COVID-19 world where we are now that isn't necessarily the case so there are still some payment holidays that are happening on exactly that basis and they will remain an indicator of a significant increase in credit risk. However we're coming across a completely new kind of payment holiday which we, we might term a blanket payment holiday. This is a case where either the government might mandate that, for example, all borrowers in a particular class get a six-month payment holiday. So they might say, for example, that all home loans in that jurisdiction don't have to make any repayments of principal and interest for six months. Um, uh, Or you might get some banks offering those kind of payment holidays again to all all loans in a particular class, such as all home mortgages. Um, Normally, interest continues to accrue during the payment holiday. So I'll talk about about that kind because that's the most common. Um, And for those kinds of payment holidays, it's not automatically the case that all of the borrowers that are subject to the blanket payment holiday automatically move to stage two. Some of those borrowers may just have a a temporary liquidity issue. Um, So they may have been laid off for a few months. Um, They might just need, if you like, a bit of cash to tide them over the next few months. But actually, when you look at their lifetime probability of default, hasn't increased very much at all. Their credit risk hasn't actually increased hardly at all, if at all. So those borrowers might not move into stage two. On the other hand, there will be some borrowers who get that blanket payment holiday whose credit risk has increased and they have a a more, um, if you like, permanent difficulty and a more permanent credit risk increase and those should move to stage two. So therefore, there needs to be a judgment to distinguish for that kind of blanket holiday who stays in stage one and who doesn't. 
and there might be a range of data you might look to to do that. And this goes back to making the best use of the information you've got. So you might look at what sector is the borrowing if you've got that information. You might look at how close were they to having a significant increase in credit risk before COVID-19. So were they, if you like, teetering on the edge and this just pushes them over the edge. You might look at their overall indebtedness if you've got that data because that might impact um, whether they will be able to recover or not when we get through COVID-19. So, but it's not a one size fits all, a lot of judgment. Okay, perfect. So there you've, uh, I think the key takeaway I've got there is uh, with these payment holidays, the blanket payment holidays anyway, that we're not automatically um, moving stages, but we need to look in a bit more detail there to make the judgment. I think the other thing, oh, go on. I said, indeed, just peep under the car bonnet and see what's going on underneath. Yeah. And I th another thing we're seeing a lot is these different government relief programmes. Do they mm -hmm. impact your ECL? When it comes to staging, they may or may not. We'll come on to measurement in a minute. But as regards staging, you need to distinguish whether the government relief programme is targeted at the borrower. So it might actually stop the borrower defaulting when they otherwise would have done. So, for example, if the government agrees to pay the borrower's salary for a few months, that may mean that their, their risk of defaulting in those months hasn't increased at all because they've still got cash coming yeah. in. Those do impact staging. Um, on the other hand, government release targeted at the lender, in particular where the government says if there is a loss, then the government will make up some or all of that loss. Those do not impact staging because staging is based on the risk of default, not the risk of loss. Okay, really helpful. So. I think there we've mentioned stages and you've alluded to it already. We then get into the measurement piece, the actual coming up with the ECL. Could you talk us through what people need to think about there? Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, there's typically three elements to calculating an ECL. So the first is the probability that the borrower will default. They won't pay when they're supposed to. And as we've already outlined, that's going to be impacted by COVID-19 and all the things I just talked about are relevant there. The second component of the calculation is what's sometimes called the exposure at default. So if there is a default, how much is the lender owed um, or the entity owed? Now that too will be impacted by COVID-19. So in the banking space, we're seeing um, people drawing down unused credit facilities. So therefore the amount at risk is gone up or they're maxing out on their credit cards. In the corporate space, we're seeing some customers taking longer to pay. So therefore, the amount of the trade receivables is going up. So again, if the, the debtor does, does ultimately default, there's just more at risk. So that's going to be impacted. And then the third component is if, if there is a default, how much of that exposure in percentage terms um, does the lender lose? And that's sometimes called the loss given default. And that too will be impacted by COVID-19, um, particularly for collateralized receivables and loans because the value of the collateral may have gone down. Or if the loans were guaranteed, then the guarantor might not be able to pay. So you need to think about all three elements of the calculation because they're all going to be impacted. So both the probability of default, exposure at default and loss given default. The second challenge when measuring default is what about the forward looking information? We said it has to be a forward looking expected credit loss model. And how do you build that in given all the uncertainty? Well, I think pretty much every entity assumed a base case. So their view of what the world would look like going forward. That clearly needs to be updated to take into account COVID-19. It's fair to say some borrowers probably stopped there and didn't have any other cases other than the base. Um, so they didn't have, for example, additional downside scenarios. Given COVID-19, that may no longer be a, a practical way forward. Previously, the downsides might not have had a material impact. Given COVID-19, that 
clearly might not be the case. So you might need to add some downside scenarios, or if you had downside scenarios before, you need to amend them or perhaps add extra downsides. Um, you may change the weightings between the different scenarios. So you might have said that the downside had a, a relatively small weighting previously. It may need, may need a bigger weighting. And to the extent you can't do that on a, a detailed loan by loan basis, you may do that with some kind of collected overlay or some sometimes called a post-model adjustment. I think we're particularly seeing that at Q1. There is a high level of judgment. There isn't the time to do detailed calculations at an individual exposure level. So doing it qualitatively with an, a collective overlay is also acceptable. And then the final thing to mention is that when you do all of that, do include the effect of government relief programmes. As I mentioned before, there, there are two types, those targeted at the borrower and those targeted at the lender. But both of those types will impact the measurement of the ECL. So include the government relief programmes where they're relevant. So you mentioned there around Q1 and given the timing of the podcast, that's probably where, you know, people's uh, mind is at the moment with interim reporting. Other than the information you've already given us, what should people think about in terms of disclosure? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I really, really can't overemphasize the importance of disclosure. There inevitably will be a lot of uncertainty and a lot of uncertainty means a lot of judgments. And the way to help the reader get their mind around that is to is to give good disclosure and really tell your story, not boilerplate. COVID-19 will have different impacts for different entities. So it's really important that you tell the reader how it's impacted you and, and what, what's happened to the credit risk in your particular case. Um, and I'm going to pick out four particular areas to focus on. So the first is the key assumptions and what's changed, um, in particular about the forward-looking information. What have you assumed about how long the virus will last for, what the recovery will look like, um, and how have you built that into your ECL model? The second one I'm going to pick on is credit risk management. Have your credit risk management practices changed? For example, are you giving certain people payment holidays? Um, are you giving debtors longer to pay? Or indeed, are you making everyone pay cash up front? Because um, that will obviously impact the amount of the credit risk. The third one is credit risk concentrations. So are you exposed to certain sectors? And you may not have given many credit risk concentrations before. You may have given them a fairly high level. Do you need to go more granular? For example, you might have disclosed um, exposure to the transport sector previously. Now you may need to disaggregate those into, say, airlines that are clearly quite heavily impacted and, say, road freight haulage that is a lot less impacted. Um, and then the final one is, I think, for many entities, this is now going to be a critical accounting estimate even if it wasn't before. So give the additional disclosures that IS1 requires. Think about sensitivities, maybe not quantitative, numerical, but at least qualitative to give the reader of the financial statement some feel for how things might play out dif differently and, and how we might look if, if, if COVID-19 does go on longer than we, we hope or the recovery is not so fast. So plenty to think about with disclosure. Brilliant. I feel like if we had one theme running throughout all these podcasts, it would be disclosure and making sure you're, like you said, telling your story and giving details about um, estimates and judgments. So thank you so much, Sandra. I know you could probably talk for hours about expected credit loss, all the questions you've been getting, but hopefully this little nugget of time will um, help people think through what they need to um, and that it's for corporates and banks. I think that was an important piece as well. 
So thanks very much for joining. And um, thank you everyone for listening. If you want more information, um, we've got plenty on um, PwC Inform. Have a look at our in-depth. Um, and also we've got some industry spotlights out there as well, which go into this in more detail. Um, so thanks again. Stay safe and happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.